we're going into the weeds this week, this month on around the nation for sure. But I mean, now is as good a time as any to have that conversation. Yeah, it's a this is going to be a podcast that's a lot about scheduling, both about the schedules themselves and the coaches who made the decisions to ramp up some of these non-conference games. And then the math behind it, I promise you, if you stick through to the math part, you'll find something that's interesting and makes sense. It was my understanding that there would be no math. Football fans, it's now time for the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast. Here are your hosts, Matt Coleman. You have a very forceful handshake, Mr. Coleman. And Greg Thomas. Thank you, Greg. That was interesting, too. It's the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast, your podcast about the largest division of college football. We welcome you to Season 16, Episode 2. This is podcast number 303, the podcast for April 30th. 2022. I'm Pat Coleman, the executive editor of D3Football.com. I'm Greg Thomas. I am the Around the Nation columnist for D3Football.com. I'm just happy to be sitting here doing this thing again, sitting in this chair with the microphone in front of me, with the you know the soundproofing and all that to make it sound as good as humanly possible. You know, we just want to make this the highest quality podcast it can possibly be. And I guess I suppose I should be recording at like 7.45 in the morning so you really get as much baritone as I can get. Uh, But this is about uh, what it's going to sound like. Greg, this is a podcast where we are talking about schedules, the folks who make them, the ramifications of them, and then, yeah, some math. Absolutely. If you've been following the D3 Football Twitter account at D3 Football, you've been seeing uh, Pat highlights some interesting and fun and exciting schedule announcements along with all of the teams that are posting their 2022 schedules. Uh, Pat, you've been doing a great job highlighting some of those really uh, fun matchups that we're going to see in the first two weeks of the season. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. Uh, we're going to talk to uh, Larry Harmon, the head coach of Mary Harden Baylor coming up later in this podcast. So we're going to skip past a couple of those games. Um, you got you know, just in week one, these are brand new matchups. So there's a lot of marquee matchups, obviously, between non-conference teams in the first couple of weeks of the season. That's where almost all of the non-conference games are played. But here are some of the ones that are new. So we've got a UW-Whitewater St. John's regular season game for the first time in almost 20 years. Uh, we got Linfield going to Huntington. Um, you know, you might not necessarily think of this as a marquee matchup but pacific lutheran is at bethel and plu for the first time is playing a 10 game schedule literally today the day that we are recording this they announced that first time 10 game schedule so congrats to the lutes east texas baptist is going to uw oshkosh uw oshkosh by the way is still looking for two more games if you have week two three or four available uh i went through and listed Every team that had not yet submitted a schedule to us, and I believe that uh, Coach Peter Jennings over there was then calling some of these schools because then as the course of the next couple of days went on, it's like, oh, we got uh, all sorts of uh, schedules that hadn't been uh, hadn't been released yet as they're saying, as uh, these schools are like, oh, no, our schedules are definitely done. We don't want to play UW Oshkosh. That's for effing sure. Uh, and then, you know, week two, uh, Hilbert starts football. They get into the mix. Uh, you got an interesting matchup between Carnegie Mellon and RPI. We got Wheaton going down to Trinity of Texas, which Greg, I mean, when we first learned about this game a couple of months ago, it's like, wow, that is the marquee matchup. It can't get any better than that. It, it got better than that for some other programs, but this is a really good matchup. It really is. And Wheaton is a team that we've seen kind of soft pedal that first week or two. Um, traditionally, they like to play close to home. They like to play a team you know, in the Chicago area or someplace that they can, you know, day trip to or host close. Um, and that has seen them play like last week they, or last year they played Northwestern. We've seen Wheaton play some MIAA teams in the past, some NACC teams. Um, Wheaton going down to San Antonio to play Trinity in week two is going to be a really big step up in that non-conference schedule for Wheaton. And it's a really good game for Trinity as well being able to get a get a point of of uh, 
competition outside of Texas and the SAA. Yeah, it's a big step up for uh, for Trinity as well. I mean, their non-conference team that they had in that spot last year was McAllister. So Wheaton will be a significant step up there. Um, and then Harden-Simmons gets into the mix with a D3 non-conference game. They're going up to UW-Platteville. That game taking place in week three. That's on September 17th. Um, and again, those are just the new ones. I mean, there's lots of games that uh, existed before, continue to exist, and, and that sort of thing. Uh, and that's even before you get into conference play, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, and that game for Harden Simmons is huge. Last year, Harden Simmons had a really uh, had a really difficult time climbing in their own region's regional rankings. And they were one of the top ranked teams that were left out of the tournament, as we know. Part of it was that non conference schedule. The ASC slimming down; they've got some more opportunities for non conference scheduling. Really great to see yeah. Harden Simmons go outside of Texas as well. Find a find a division three game, which is really important for them and a quality opponent in platform. Uh, Central is a team. They finished, of course, number six last year and they lose, you know, all everything quarterback. Right. Uh, but they're stepping up. They had a really poor strength of schedule last year. Uh, they're stepping up that schedule a little bit uh, off. The schedule is Kalamazoo on the schedule is UW Eau Claire. Uh, and I think, you know, we're going to talk more about math, right? Woohoo! Thanks, I hate it. But anytime, just logically, anytime that you can play someone in the WIAC, that uh, amplifies your schedule just in general. It really does. The the WIC, that's a, that's a league that constantly has really strong strengths of schedule. If you can plug your schedule into that WIAC ecosystem in the way that the SOS is calculated currently, um, you're that's always going to be a winner for you. Uh, even though... Wisconsin-Eau Claire, that's a team that struggles to be in the top half of that league. But if you're central, you're going to get into all of the non-conference games that the WIAC teams win. And you're going to get a really quality opponent in UW-Eau Claire as well. And we also talked last year down the stretch about UW-River Falls, a team that really good, a great season in the WIAC. But their strength of schedule was kind of suspect, which is really difficult to do in the WIAC because of how good the conference is overall. And last year, in 2021, their non-conference games were Elmhurst, uh, Hendricks, and Northwestern, uh, Northwestern of Minnesota. This year, Elmhurst, Northwestern of Minnesota, still on the schedule, but you take out Hendricks and you place them with, oh, St. John's. That's a pretty good upgrade for the Falcons, for sure. Really big upgrade, and that's going to be a test to see if River Falls has sort of taken that step to playoff caliber team. They're going to go to Clemens Stadium and play St. John's, who we know is a perennial playoff team in a really difficult environment, but environments are not going to be a new thing for River Falls. They play in big stadiums and in front of rowdy crowds uh, often in the WIAC. This would be also a time of year where we would hopefully be talking about guys in Division Three in contention for the NFL draft. Now, at the time that we're recording this, the first round is in the books. I mean, I know it's kind of late out east. I assume they're finally done with that. I don't know. Um, we would not see a, a player drafted generally until Saturday. Anyway, looking like kind of a tough year for uh, Division Three out there. So we're not super focused on that in this month. But if you hear, you know, uh, like, um, I don't know, if, if Andrew Kaminsky gets a free agent uh, signing somewhere with an NFL team or, you know, Jefferson Fritz or uh, Joshua Unachogu from Framingham State, defensive end, who's getting a lot of run, uh, has got a uh, has got a, a great burst and a, and a uh, and some great speed off the edge uh, for you know for the Rams getting from the mass cack all the way up to the NFL is a big jump but uh, you know those are, and he's a 24 year old so he's got a little bit of uh, extra experience I don't know who these guys are gonna be uh, you can certainly follow on the website on Saturday on the off chance. Uh, someone gets drafted or more likely, far more likely that we'll be following somewhere around a half dozen guys who get training camp invites or free agent contracts, et cetera, et cetera. Just doesn't seem like it's D3's kind of year. No, it, it hasn't been. And I, you know, I don't know if that's wholly unexpected. You had a lot of players with that extra year of college to play a lot of uh, older players, more experienced players, maybe fewer uh, underclassmen from division one that you see get drafted. So I think the pool maybe is a little bit diff, a little bit deeper and um, you know, maybe just not quite the one or two division three standouts that we've seen the last couple of years, guys like Quinn miners 
and Ben Barge the year before. One of the reasons that we are able to continue to do this podcast, to do this podcast in the offseason, we do all the things that we do on D3Football.com and D3Hoops.com and D3Baseball.com during their offseasons is having the support of people like you. I'm looking at you right here. Yes, that's you right there in the camera. You, if you are a Patreon subscriber or some other donor to the D3Sports.com enterprise, you are helping us make this thing happen. People who do so on Patreon do so by using the uh, the Patreon platform and they uh, donate a number of dollars per month, anywhere from three up to there are people who donate $50 a month and we are super thankful for you. We're actually quite thankful for you. And I should get like, you know, uh, polo shirts or something made up for these people because they have really helped us sustain this thing, which started, you know, back in December of 2020 when we didn't know if a pandemic was going to end anytime soon. We didn't know when football was going to return. And when we don't have football, uh, it is really difficult to do D3Sports.com in general because I don't know if you understand, but football is fairly popular and the football site is fairly popular and kind of drives everything else that we're able to do. The Patreon drive that started back in December of 2020 that really has sustained uh, the site and the family of sites. And it's not just D3Football.com that benefits from that. It's also the great work that's being done at D3Hoops.com if you followed all of that postseason coverage through the Final Four, which was a fantastic event, well covered by uh, our team on the site there. And uh, getting ready for baseball postseason just around the corner, the crew D3Baseball.com is going to preview that, keep you up to date with all of the all of the polls and rankings, previews, and results from the upcoming Division Three Baseball World Series. These are the things that happen because of your help, and we are greatly appreciative of that patreon.com slash d3sports or if you want to help us in a different manner like with a one-time uh, gift donation you can go to d3sports.com slash help on the last edition of the d3football.com around the nation podcast we talked with the new head coach up at north central brad spencer took over after a number of years as offensive coordinator at north central now we're talking with larry Harmon, the uh who's taken over as head coach of Mary Harden Baylor, the defending national champs after 17 seasons as defensive coordinator. First of all, uh, Larry, thanks for taking the time to join us on the podcast today. Absolutely. Thank you for this for this opportunity to talk about Mary Harden Baylor. Absolutely. I'm sure there's a, a lot of things to talk about, right? And a lot of opportunity for you to talk more and more about Mary Harden Baylor in the new role as head coach over the course, uh, course of the past couple of months. What's it been like transitioning in so far? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of been... Uh you know, jump in and sink or swim kind of situation. But uh, uh, there's a lot of support and we got great administrators that are, you know, helping me get through this as easy as possible. Is it easier to start with spring ball? I mean, right, that's something that is familiar and probably easy to do, that sort of thing. Yeah, and, you know, that's where you start building your team. So, that, I mean, the, the transition couldn't have been any better as far as timing, I don't think. Like, was it a surprise to you? I mean, I had to think, like, I thought personally, and just personally, I'm not sure that we said anything publicly about it. I thought that uh, Coach Fred might retire after the previous national championship. Well, you know, Coach is just one of those guys that eats, sleep, drinks football, and he really loves being in the in the know of the game across the nation. And, you know, he's got his group of buddies that, you know, they talk every Monday morning and, so just just that lifestyle that, that he was used to and and just the love and how much he enjoys coaching and every aspect of it. Um, you know, I mean, there were talks, but nothing ever did he ever say, yeah, I'm really thinking that it's going to be this. This is the timeline. Yeah. Um, I'm just glad that uh, I'm very proud that I was on his staff for as long as I was and that uh, – a guy got to stay as long as he wanted to and leave on his own terms. I think that's very rare in our business anymore and and uh, just shows what a great person he was and what a special leader he is. I mean, he's in all the Hall of Fames for, for a reason. He's pretty unique and pretty special, and uh, it's a big loss for the university. I noticed that uh, Coach Fred is still on the list as a listed as a special assistant. Like, what do you picture? How do you picture calling on him? You know, how do you picture him being involved going forward for a while? Yeah, so the plan was to keep him on on payroll through, uh, I believe it's through May. Okay. And um, he was, you know, whatever scheduling was a huge deal. 
um, helping me uh, find coaches and just using his resources. And, uh, you know, he's the last 22 years, I don't think there's been a single day that I didn't have a conversation with Pete Frenberg. Yeah. And uh, so he's always been somebody that I've always bounced ideas off. And uh, he's going to be that for me. I mean, he's been that through this time and he, he will be in the future. I mean, he's just uh, pretty gracious with his time and all it takes is a phone call and uh, he'll give me his advice. You mentioned scheduling. Uh, the schedule that uh, the crew has put together here for the uh, for the fall is pretty impressive. You guys open with a team that's played in the national semifinals in Muhlenberg. You guys then go to UW-Whitewater, who you played in the national semifinals last year. And obviously there have been a number of just great Mary Harden-Baylor-Whitewater games. Um, and then, you know, in, in your ASC schedule, you have Harden-Simmons in September. Um, yep. Tell us just a little bit about, you know, A, putting that together, B, obviously that guy, that got you guys a lot of notoriety, but C, kind of just what a way to, to to go out and defend your national title then. Yeah, I mean, there's a bunch of factors that went into it. Um, one is just when you try to get games, when I call, you know, they say, coach, thanks, but no thanks. We're not going to play you no matter how many open weeks we have. Yeah. And uh, I think it's a big – uh, kudos to Muhlenberg and Whitewater uh, for accepting it. And, you know, all the co- all the talks that I had as with head coaches, is uh, us three, we all talked about, well, we're going to get to find out where our team is. Yeah. It's better to know that early than late. Um, there's really nothing negative about, about the schedule. I mean, you don't play good people and you don't know where you stand up as when you get into the playoffs. And uh, I just uh, – you know, I'm, I'm ecstatic that uh, there's some guys out there that that like these kind of games, and I think it's good for D3. And, and uh, you know, what I told the kids when the schedule came out is that uh, the eyes of Division Three are going to be watching us the first two weeks. So, Absolutely true. Which is all, all positive. Yeah, for sure. I know you guys have a whole season to play, but I just been thinking a little bit forward too, right? Because, you know, Bellhaven leaves the conference for the fall of 22 and going forward. So you had an extra non-conference game to fill. So you had two. And then you're going to have – it's going to get a little harder, right? I mean, Southwestern leaves at the end of yep, this year, yep. right? So – next year yeah yeah and what is what does that look like i know i think i understand that whitewater is a home and home and do you have muhlenberg yep. again and are you then looking no, for muhlenberg's just a one-year deal their 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 conference is changing and they got plenty right. of games now so uh yeah it's going to be right now i believe our conference is trying to get a, a, a another conference that will kind of play each other for non-conference to try to help sure uh that up and so that's been the we act right now and you know, I think it's going to go through, but nothing is officially set yet, I don't think. Well, we're certainly seeing a bunch of games between those two conferences on the schedule for this fall, so I can see. And those are, you know, your conference and their conference have a hard time scheduling D3 opponents for sure. Yeah, and, and the California League would be the, the next hardest. And, you know, I mean, uh, the WEAC's a really tough conference. So, I mean, some of it is location, but a lot of it also is, I think, just competition. So, you know, when when people talk about, you know, we were nine and one or eight and two and we didn't get in. Yeah, but right. you didn't schedule, you know, right. a, a top 10 team nationally ranked. And so do you really deserve to get in or not? I, You know, I, I'm just trying to make sure that uh, our guys are always playing 10 games and uh, we can back up our body of work with any uh, selection committee saying that, yeah, these guys do deserve to get in. So you've been or had been the defensive coordinator for the crew for 17 seasons. And this was a, you know, a program that essentially for all of that time and before, frankly, uh, was known as defense first. It's like defense, defense. Oh, yeah, and we'll run the ball a lot too. Um, that kind of changed over the course of the past couple of years and especially down the stretch last year. Uh, you know, Kyle King just kind of explodes out of nowhere at quarterback, goes from off the radar sort of as Division three quarterbacks go to the guy who I think probably, I'm not saying this officially, but, you know, is probably is certainly a preseason All-American for us going into the fall and maybe the best quarterback coming back. Um, what's it like just to having witnessed that transformation and now you're kind of at the top overseeing all of it? Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, you know, it's neat. I think it's kind of how the game has changed the rules and everything, the speed of play. I mean, uh, it's turning into 
an offensive type. I mean, point scored is kind of the main factor of win or loss. And I know that sounds pretty obvious, but uh, the days of playing field position and thinking you don't keep everybody to, you know, 150 yards and six points, uh, the way the rules are stated now and stuff, I think that's really hard to do. And I think you can see that across any program that's been known defensively. Uh, those head coaches are saying the same thing. I heard Nick Saban comment about that at Alabama that, you know, uh, the days of field position and stuff is is kind of over. You got to try to hold people under 24 and, and score a lot of points and develop your weapons and, and use them. So so that that's really kind of how it started for us is that, you know, I mean, 16, it was 10 to what, 10 to seven. And, yeah. and then uh, 17, we got beat. And then it was kind of like, well, we need to rethink our philosophy and and uh, the offensive staff, Steve Lee and, and uh, those guys did a great job of finding a way to open it up and using our people. And uh, we did a great job recruiting. We got a lot of weapons. And uh, so anyway, it's uh, I, I think that it's here to stay. I think that last part is the question that I was going to ask next, right? So, like, as football has evolved, and maybe maybe Mary Hart and Baylor as a program was a little slower to follow that trend, right? But you guys are here, and now you're totally bought in going forward. Yeah, I what what I would say is that we had our system of winning, of playing championship football. Yeah, and that had to be tweaked just a little bit, not. I wouldn't say philosophy changed, but there had to be uh, some risk analysis taken more into effect that, yeah, we're willing to risk this to move forward with offensive play in, in Division Three football. Totally makes sense. So what's it been like to kind of get to know those guys better on the offensive side of the football, right? We talked about this with Coach Spencer last month. He's coming from the offense, so like he knows like all the guys on the on that side of the ball and like the guys he recruited personally, but he was getting to know, you know, the other bunch of guys on the uh, on the defensive side of the ball and I have to think it's somewhat similar for you. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it's been uh it's kind of been a, a fresh air, you know, a little bit of fresh air blown on you the there's a lot of great kids that I really didn't know their personalities that I've got to know. And, uh, you know, just being in that room with the leadership, our unity council, and, and there's 10 guys on that. And uh, just being around those guys and watching those guys develop as leaders on our team. Uh, it's just been uh, really neat and cool. And that's, to be honest, that's why I wanted to be the head coach. I mean, I was ready for a change and, and thought I could do the job. And so, um, you know, this timing just worked out for everybody. And right. Things changed, not just uh, on your side of the ball, um, but also on the offensive side of the ball. Right. Uh, coach Lee moves on. Andy Padrone is a guy who, you know, people should be familiar with if they've paid attention to Division three football in as offensive coordinator. And do you expect any you know changes or based on what you saw in the spring on what's going on on that side of the ball? Yeah, you know, Andy, Andy was our quarterback in 04. So yep. he's the first quarterback in our program history to win a playoff game. And uh, so he brings a passion and an understanding of proof football that I couldn't find out of any other candidate. And, uh, you know, I, the interview process for that position, I interviewed four people and they're great and they all knew football and, and uh, it just kind of came down to Andy's kind of the, the best fit because he knows us, he knows expectations. And he's got a, a, a great knowledge. and He's he's really good at developing quarterbacks. And uh, he did that at TOU. He did that at Bowling Green. He did that at Soto. So he's been at some really major programs and uh, been in charge of that thing and has done great things. And uh, I think hiring him as the OC was just a slam dunk. On my part, I mean, I'm really happy with it. And having exit interviews with the teams when we got done with spring, they all the players kind of concurred my feeling. I mean, they all think Andy's the guy and really enjoy what he's doing. And uh, so uh, we'll see what we look like in the fall. But uh, if we can back up what we did in the spring, we're going to be excited. Well, and so what was it like in the spring? I'd also have to think, too, it's like, um, you know, guys could come into this feeling, you know, I don't know. A, a couple of different ways you could feel, you know, pressure based on last year, knowing that you are, you guys are, are the defending national champs. Everybody comes gunning for you guys. 
Um, you know, you'll be the prohibitive favorite. Uh, does that? How does that weigh on the? How does that weigh on the student athletes' minds? How does that uh, factor into the coaches? Yeah, I mean, it's it's there, but it's this program's been dealing with that since uh, really since sixteen, and yeah. and uh, we felt it a little bit in 04, You know, the 05, 06 season obviously weren't quite ready to handle it because we, you know, we couldn't get back. And, but uh, since 16, we've been um, dancing in it quite a bit. And so, um, you know, you just learn how to, to deal with that. And the, the pressure more comes from just everybody individually puts more pressure on themselves than you get from uh, our administration has not told me you got to win the national championship or you're fine. I mean, that's so, but that's what we want to do and we think we have the talent to do it and so now it's just can we all come together and gel and and develop and you know every year is different and we're just kind of in the beginning of that process right now so uh, our next step is getting through the summer and getting everybody back here in august did anything interesting happen in spring ball that you want to talk about that you can talk about what what uh, what should we look forward to seeing I mean, the things that happened with spring ball and stuff was just, you know, getting our offense implemented, uh, getting to see Kyle and the other quarterbacks throw the ball around, see our receivers make plays. Uh, you know, I mean, the thing that you can tell from spring is that uh, uh, we got some guys that can run fast, jump high and catch footballs. Um, you know, the things we don't know is just how tough are we? How feels, I mean, cause you don't get to do any of that stuff. Contact stuff. Right. Yeah. And then you just get to see the biggest thing was watching. Like I said, that every year we have a unity council that's voted on by the team and it's 10 to 12 guys that get voted in to, as a leadership role and just watching them grow and develop as leaders and how the team reacts and kind of seeing the direction that the team wants to go. Uh, that's been real exciting and I'm excited what they're doing with it. So um, that's, that's probably the number one thing I'm taking out of spring ball is the unity council being servant leaders and then coach Padron and the offensive staff getting uh, the offense implemented. And I just want to really call out some kudos to, or really appreciate uh, coach Bullis and coach Milam taking the games and playing us and, you know, Whitewater's playing, St. John's and then us and Muhlenberg didn't have to take our game, but they did. And I just think it's great for D3 football and, and football in general. And uh, I just, I really think that those guys are special men and that's why they're in charge of those programs. And, you know, we're excited. We know it's going to be tough and it's going to be great competition, but yeah, I, I, I just think it's fantastic and I'm excited to be in it and uh, I'm excited to meet those guys and have a chance to shake their hand and, and visit more because uh, we all think alike and that's pretty cool. Greg, the first thing, the one big thing that I wrote down, I don't know if you can see it on this notepad is ASC WIAC challenge. Holy wow. Holy forking shirt balls, right? That would be amazing if that happens in 2023. That would be very fun. And those are two leagues that are going to have a difficult time getting opponents to play them both because of strength and because of geography less so with the WIAC, although we do see some um some teams that don't want to travel all the way up to Oshkosh for instance Oshkosh is kind of out of the way when you think about it it's not the only reason that they have a tough time getting a 10 game schedule but it doesn't help them that they are they a lake you know, in the way right there is a very inconveniently placed lake there and if you're going to play a team in Wisconsin and you can maybe go to Whitewater and get a similar experience that you would get by traveling another 200 miles or whatever it is up to Oshkosh. Maybe you just not do the extra 200 miles. And so, yeah, ASC WIAC challenge would be fun. I, I jotted a couple of things down after listening to Larry Harmon. He said, you know, sink or swim and sink or swim indeed. But I think there's a little bit of a difference when you get thrown into the deep end with a leaky old rowboat. And when you get thrown into the deep end with a Nimitz class carrier. This business will get out of control. It'll get out of control and we'll be lucky to live through. The Crusaders, they've been in four of the last five stag bowls. They've won three of those games. Um, the the program there in Belton is really sturdy. And I think Larry Harmon is going to do more than just okay there in Belton. He's got, you know, all of the tools he needs to be successful. 
So he talked about, you know, that they, the administration hasn't told him that he has to win the national championship, which is good, which is good. There's 239 or so teams. Sorry, there's 229 or so teams that are uh, gunning for the uh, possibility to, uh, to do that as well. But you know that that fan base and the alumni, and for that matter, the players expect to be in the hunt. They expect to be playing in December, if nothing else, and probably the second weekend in December, and almost certainly the third week in December, too. It is, and he did mention that those those games that they're playing early on, where they're going to get tested against Muhlenberg and Wisconsin Whitewater, you know, he wants to see how good his team is early in the season. He said it's important to find out how good you are early on and then work from there. You know, they, they do have Kyle King back, you know, and he's coming in as, like you said in the interview, maybe one of the best, if not the best, returning passer. Um, I don't know. There weren't many people in the division playing better than he was, certainly by the time they got to Canton. And there, there are a lot of holes to fill on offense for them this year, particularly at the skill positions. They lost a lot of really experienced receivers that Kyle King really got comfortable with last season. But there's never, ever a shortage of athletes there at UMHB. And I don't know how they're going to look in the first couple of weeks in those two games, but I think that they will be as good as anybody in the division when we get into the playoff weeks. You start off with Muhlenberg. Nate Milne then uh, gets you know the opportunity to take his team down there, get them super tested. I mean, that's a program that's going to look a little different this year, or a team that's going to look a little different. You know, Natkowski no longer there. That's a guy who's been an all-world passer for them. Um, you know, and they took Mount Union to the brink, right? Um, but you know, that's a you know, it, if you need a quarter to get your feet wet, which in the past maybe some Mary Harden Baylor programs, some Mary Harden Baylor teams have done. At the very least. You know, Muhlenberg ended the season ranked number seven in our poll, and I I know when I do my ballot, I'm not expecting to put them in my top 20. I don't know quite where the uh, the rest of the... I know, sorry, Whoa. sorry, I should say, I don't know what the rest of the teams look like. So sometimes teams that I don't expect to go into my top 20, you know, I don't have enough teams in my top 20 to actually say that. So they might end up like 15 or something like that. R- regardless, regardless, my goodness. Regardless, everybody in Allentown, you have, I, I think everybody would agree that uh, Muhlenberg has some figuring out of its own to do as a team. They do. And not, not that I don't think we expected to go into a deep dive preview of Muhlenberg UMHB here in week one, but <laughs> Michael Natkowski has sort of been the headliner there at Muhlenberg for the last couple of seasons or four or five or however long he was there. It's been a while, but um, really their, their move through the, playoffs and into the deeper rounds the quarterfinals and the semifinals for me has been a lot about their defense and if they travel down to belton with the kind of defense that they were playing late in the season last year they might hang around and and you know make it an interesting game down there while umhb you know maybe is trying out some new faces on offense You follow Division Three football in late October, early November, uh, especially on Twitter. You see lots of talk about numbers, lots of talk about strength of schedule and how it plays into the NCAA Division Three football playoff picture. But as we know, and we've talked about it a lot, especially in football, strength of schedule is a really poor metric. Let's just put it that way. I'm trying to be polite here, but we brought on someone to talk about strength of schedule, to talk about math, to talk about, yes, I know we promised there would be no math, but Logan Hansen is here to talk us through strength of schedule, how it can be improved, uh, how it can be made into something that the NCAA football committee might actually use. Logan, I appreciate you taking the time to join us here. Thanks for having me on. I, uh, I'm glad to talk math to anybody who will listen. So I'm glad that I found a community that's willing to let me ramble. And I'm going to just say here for posterity's sake, this is the third conversation Logan and I have had. One was intentionally not recorded. The second one was accidentally not recorded. This is going to be one great conversation. Logan, uh, of course, played football at Wartburg at the end of the aughts, beginning of the whatever, the tens, I guess. Teens, yeah. Yeah, the previous decade. And you can find him on Twitter at uh, Loghan Ratings, L-O-G-H-A-N Ratings. But, um, you know, Logan, I could try to take you through something uh, about this, but you know this 
far better than I do. Tell us a little bit about what we know some of the things that are wrong with strength of schedule, right? Uh, there's some big picture things wrong that we talk about a lot. What are the other things that are wrong? What can be done about them? Right. So I think it's worth just talking about some of those big picture things real quick. Everybody has probably heard of RPI and the current calculation for SOS is basically the same as what has been, was used forever by basketball for NCAA selection in division one with RPI. And you just cut off the first bit of it, which is a team's winning percentage. Then you're just looking at opponents winning percentage and opponents, opponents winning percentage. Some of the problems specific to division three football, I'd say the big one is for 10 team conferences that play a full round Robin, it's really hard to get good numbers when a conference like the ASC forever is only playing four or five non-conference games against division three opponents. It's hard to gauge them against other conferences. Same with the OAC, um, the UMAC for a long time had 10 teams. That's one of the big things that gets talked about a lot. Some of the other problems, one's an easy one that I think everybody can kind of understand is that home field advantage isn't included in the calculation of strength of schedule. If, if I was able to play 10 home games, that's an easier schedule against the same opponents than if I played 10 away games. That's an easy one to you know acknowledge. That's an issue. Um, there's ways to fix it and ways to make it worse. And if you try to do what men's basketball is doing for home field advantage, that probably makes it worse where you're just multiplying every game that an opponent played by 1.25 or 0.75 based on whether you played them at home or away. Um, yeah. That doesn't actually do what you want it to do if you do it like that. Um, some of the other things are that the NCAA bylaws actually defines strength of schedule as the average of your opponent's winning percentage, but that's not what is actually done in the calculation. Instead of averaging opponent's winning percentages, the calculation sums all of their wins, all of your opponent's wins, and divides by all of your opponent's games. So if you have an opponent like UW Oshkosh, who has three non-conference games but struggles to fill a full schedule and struggles to fill a schedule with Division three opponents, I mean, there was a year when I was coaching at UW Platteville, Oshkosh played two top 25 NAIA schools and Division one FCS South Dakota State in one up for their non-conference games one year. So they only then have seven Division three games. So that's a really good team, but their effect on their opponent's SOS is smaller because they weren't able to schedule a full Division three slate. A couple of the more, getting into more of the mathy stuff here, strength of schedule, the way it's calculated now, is not independent from a team's own record. Yeah, this is really interesting. You describing this to me previously, and for you know, for people who are just, I don't know, if, people who are just joining us in April of 2022. Cool, 302 previous podcasts you could listen to to try to catch up on this. But strength of schedule right now is you take your opponent's winning percentage and then you add uh, half of the opponent's opponent's winning percentage. Is that did I get that right? Two thirds opponent's winning percentage, one third opponent's opponent's winning percentage. I'm a little out of it in April. Go on. Any strength of schedule metric, it shouldn't depend on how good my team is to determine how good my strength of schedule is. It should just be my opponents, right? So when RPI, which again is like the legacy of this SOS metric, when that was formulated, they understood that, right? That you want to decouple these two things. And when you're calculating opponents winning percentage, it is like they, they subtract the games that are I played from my own SOS, but then especially in division three football where we, you know, large conferences, most of your games are conference games. What ends up happening in the opponents opponents winning percentage is I can be my own opponent opponent. If I go 10 and O versus O and 10, I'm going to actually increase my own strength of schedule because I am my own opponent's opponent, right? So you just take those games out of that calculation and then however well I fared in my games isn't going to move my SOS one way or the other. This, uh, a fictional uh, Mountain Union goes 10-0. and 0. 
John Carroll goes nine and one. John Carroll in Mount Union strength of schedule is listed as nine and zero, oh, right? Right. But then you come back around, and Mount Union is also an opponent of Ohio Northern, who plays both of those teams because it's a conference game. And there, you're saying that that win or that loss is not subtracted from the opponent in that part of the calculation. Yep. Yeah, you nailed it this time. Third time's a charm. Yes. <laughs> Those are those are just some of the like current structural issues that I think you know could be fixed um, pretty easily. It's just you know tweaking the equation one way or the other. But to get to the heart of the matter, like you mentioned at the jump, that you know the committees don't exactly use this metric, the strength of schedule. So I looked back at about nine years of data. So I looked at the week nine regional rankings. Because in week nine, we don't have any, we, I'll take a step back, primary criteria for playoff selection. You've got winning percentage, strength of schedule, head-to-head, revolt, results versus common opponents, and wins and losses versus regionally ranked opponents. Right. And in that first one, you don't have the wins and losses against regionally ranked opponents because there isn't a previous ranking to draw from. Exactly. I see why this is a good uh, this is a good data set for you to draw from. Yeah, yeah exactly. So you, you can really isolate how the committees are factoring strength of schedule into their rankings. So I found 202 pairs of teams that had the same record in the same region and no head to head, no common opponents. So I looked, all right, how how often is the team with the better strength of schedule actually ranked ahead of the a team that has this all the same other criteria as them, right? So if the committees are actually looking at the primary criteria the way a robot would, it's only 57% of the time that the team with the better SOS is ranked ahead of the team with the worst SOS. So it's barely a coin flip. They're, flip. they're not really considering it as a valuable metric. Yeah, what you're saying is basically the committee is ignoring this in favor of using some sort of subjective understanding of how good team A is versus team B. And I feel like generally they're doing that fairly accurately. I would agree. Um, yeah. And it might sound a little weird coming from me, a, a guy who, you know, does mathematical modeling, team rankings, but like I want there to be some more subjectivity in this process, but I also want the committees to have better data at their disposal to make more informed decisions instead of going from their gut all the time. Like their gut's usually pretty good because the people on these committees know these teams really well. Um, so that they know football. Yeah. yeah, they know football. And that's that's why they're not following this strength of schedule metric because they know it's not any good. Okay, so this stuff is in the NCA bylaws, which means yeah. it would take, you know, big groups of people voting in order to make significant changes. You've talked about a couple of kind of band-aids we could put on it. Yeah. But, you know, in order to make it really good, what are the things that we have to do to just revamp strength of schedule completely? Yeah, so the first thing that you have to do is use margin of victory instead of winning percentage. So I hear the alarm bells go off in the background. Tell us a little bit about how margin of victory works. Uh, because everybody who hears margin of victory is now going to go, well, that's just going to make people want to run up the score. Yeah, we don't want anybody winning 97 to nothing or 98 to nothing out here. And I, and I agree. Like, I, I want teams to schedule marquee matchups. Like, UW-Whitewater right here, I just saw their schedule this year. They've got St. John's, Mary Harden-Baylor, and Barry. Um, yeah. Barry wasn't a top 10 team last year, but they're pretty consistently top 25 teams. If every good team scheduled like that, that's great, right? But it's hard because it, it's usually not worth it because you're not going to move your SOS that much. Are the committees really going to weigh that into their decisions that much? You, you don't really know. But margin of victory is better than winning percentage. And this is, it's just better at telling you how good teams are. If you take their average margin of victory and you can cap it at say 21 points per game, do anything you want like that, you know, have decreasing, you know, value after a certain point, whatever, but it's still going to be a better metric than wins and losses. And there's just decades of people testing this and showing for whatever sport you want to look at football, basketball, baseball, margin of victory, just 
is a better predictor than wins and losses for which teams are good and which teams are bad. Okay, so now you have a way of applying margin of victory that kind of disincentivizes the the big running up of scores, though. So right. tell us a little bit about that. So I talked earlier about trying to make the metric independent from a team's own record. Right, so you do the same thing with margin of victory. Like if I'm averaging my opponent's margin of victories, I'm subtracting my own games from that calculation. And then when I'm looking at opponent's opponent's margin of victory, I can't be my own opponent's opponent. You subtract that from the calculation. You completely decouple my margin of victory from my strength of schedule. And then it doesn't matter if I beat a team 97 to nothing. It's not going to move my strength of schedule up or down whatsoever. That's, that's how a strength of schedule calculation should work. You know, it takes some education to tell teams, hey, you can't affect your own SOS by kicking the crap out of this team, scoring that late touchdown. It's not going to matter. Right. So then once you're up by 21 or 20, whatever the yeah. cap ends up being, right? Yeah. Yeah. And then the other thing to address the issue with conference sizes, which I don't think I mentioned earlier, but we have not mentioned it on this particular call. No. Yeah. Those 10 team conferences, it's hard. Every con every team's SOS within that conference is going to be huddled around 500 right now, just because you've got one non-conference game to really move it off of that 500 baseline, because it's just it's a round robin schedule within your conference. Um, so to account for that in my proposed metric, you would take the conference's average non-conference margin of victory, right? So if I'm you know, the WEAC, I play my three non-conference games, or I'm the OAC, I play my one non-conference game. And I average every team's margin of victory within the conference and the non-conference games. So for WEAC, OAC, CCIW, those were the top three when I calculated this for 2021. And it's at about three to four points per game above average. So it doesn't really move it a whole lot, but then you go add that to every team's margin of victory, whatever their conference's average non-conference margin of victory was. And it just moves those teams that have a lot of teams in their conference. It moves them away from that baseline of 500 or zero margin of victory. And it just makes it a little more accurate. So let me, I'm just pulling up 2021 OAC, for example. So, uh, Baldwin Wallace beat Hampton Sydney 45-24. That was the only non-conference game for Baldwin Wallace. And so for in order for that to make the OAC look better, is it a matter of then, you know, what's the rest of the world's margin of victory against Hampton Sydney or how is that is that what it's compared to? Yeah, so you'd calculate the opponent's opponent average margin of victory for every game that they played. You want to use as much good data as you can. You don't want to when you've only got 10 games, nine games in division three football, and then one, two non-conference games, you don't want to throw away any of that data. You need to, as much as you can get, um, <laughs> yeah. you know, make it useful. Um, so then the last thing in my metric that I would like to see, and this one conceptually is a little harder to explain, but I think people understand it. So my metric I call surplus margin of victory. The teams that we're comparing for these SOS metrics are usually really good. They're nine and one, they're eight and two, right? Their team's on the bubble for pool C. So for a nine and one team, there's not a big difference between how hard it is to beat a five and five team versus a two and eight team, right? I'm just as likely to win that game for the most part, for all intents and purposes, versus a 500 team or a 200 team. So what I would want to do is, calculate every opponent's margin of victory and then it can't be any worse than zero so that's the surplus how much better than average were they it makes it a more useful metric for comparing these really good teams because you know you play one mary harden baylor their average margin of victory is going to be great right it's going to be like 20 even if you're capping it at 21 points per game right and that winning that one game is really friggin' hard. So you want to have a metric that acknowledges that without having then, you know, you play three really bad teams. You don't want that to drag your strength of schedule all the way back down below average. It would acknowledge that playing one really good team 
makes it a lot harder to go nine and one or eight and two than playing a bunch of pretty good teams. Even though you know, I just made up this metric this winter, this spring, it, it does a better job of reflecting what the regional ranking committees actually think about these teams than the metric that they're supposed to be using. I think that's a good indication that this would provide more useful information to these committees. And hopefully they you know, would put some stock into it and then we'd have more predictable selections for pool C, more predictable seedings for the playoffs and teams would understand, hey, if I want to improve my SOS, the only way to do it is to play better teams, right? There's no way to game the system other than just playing better teams, which is what you would want a strength of schedule metric to do. If uh, people want to find out more and dig in more to the sort of stuff you're doing, where should they go? How do they find it? Well, I can probably post, I have posted this manifesto that I wrote about all of my issues with the NCAA's strength of schedule on Twitter. So I'll, I'll probably make that my pinned tweet. So if somebody feels like reading 2,500 words about strength of schedule in the NCAA, um, go check out my Twitter, L-O-G-H-A-N ratings. And I'll just say that's a little shout out to Ken Pomeroy, who does Division One basketball ratings. Ken Pom. Yeah, so that's, yeah, yeah, yeah. that's what sparked my interest in doing this for football 10 years ago when I started doing it was I discovered Ken Pomeroy for basketball and I was like, hey, I wonder if anybody does this for Division Three football. So I started doing it. One of the things that I really liked about what Logan did here was he went back and kind of, I mean, not really reverse engineered, although sort of that is like he took the SOS that exists. He compared it in the places where the committee was most likely to use it. And, you know, the math shows that the committee doesn't use it. I mean, and uh, 87 out of 200 times, the uh, team with the lower SOS was ranked ahead of the team with the higher SOS uh, in, in, in instances where basically everything else was. Uh, was uh, was pretty equal, which shows to me, you know, it's basically 57.43% uh, for using the SOS. Getting the committee a metric that they can be, that they can have a little more confidence in seems like a no-brainer. It seems like they would want to do that. Yeah, and I think that was that was the the big thing that I wrote down and circled on my notepad when I when I listened to your chat with Logan earlier is that point about how the data show that the racks are not necessarily using the strength of schedule metric the way that they should. And he, he did a very good job of leveling out all of the other primary criteria variables to find only those instances where the only difference between two teams is the strength of schedule and it's 50, 50. Sometimes they do. Sometimes they don't rank the team with the higher strength of schedule higher than the team with the lower strength of schedule in those cases. And that doesn't seem to make a lot of sense except for the fact that the people watching those games and evaluating those teams know that that metric isn't telling them the thing that it's supposed to. So what we've seen racks do recently is find ways to kind of subvert that metric. Right. Yeah. You know, they can get creative with the way that they rank teams to play around with some other criteria to wind up getting things that they think are right and our listeners you know we had a conversation about this last november and our listeners can go back to episode 294 for a more extensive recap on that that's right i did that damn greg is dropping an episode number holy crap huh look at that my uh my entire uh notebook for paid for uh podcast 294 has like 12 words on it very well done sir damn (laughs) wow And that is my stat of the week. That's not my stat. Also, not going to be my stat. Not my stat. Oh, man. Uh, I mean, I'm a little punchy, but I'm not that punchy. Uh, I'm completely uh, completely knocked off my my rocker here. Um, Right. I mean, the committee, the, the committee knows football and the committee generally understands which teams are better. But they're not, they don't have the numbers. They're not given the numbers to support that. So, you know, the question here is now, you know, how does something like this actually get accomplished? And there's a, oh, apparently baked into the bylaws. That's pretty stupid, in my opinion, to have this baked into the bylaws. And then we had so much conversation 
in basketball about how poorly some of the numbers were that were described were executed. So, you know, not only do we have to do that, but then we have to hope that the the actual math people in Indianapolis, this is one of the few things that actually is the NCAA. This is the NCAA doing the math. They have to do that math correctly in order for it to be useful. Yeah. And I think something that something that Logan said that really, really, I think drove the point home is that in, in division three football, we don't have an abundance of data. We don't have yeah. 25 games to use like the new in basketball or even 12, right? Yeah. I mean, the amount of data that we have is super, super tiny. And because we have such limited data, it's really important to get the most out of that data and to use that data in a way that makes the decisions we drive from it really robust. And, you know, if that means adding a variable to account for a team's performance against their schedule and not just wins and losses or any of the other changes he talked about, if we can agree that the, that we're not using the data really well, uh, maybe, maybe there's room to change and update that and make the data more useful for us. I'm just going to state for the record uh, I provided Greg with a 27 minute cut of that interview with Logan. Uh, if you heard a shorter version of it, that's good. That meant I had uh, some time to edit it uh, down into something a little bit tighter. There is just so much there though. Um, there's a lot to talk about. And if you, you know, like, like he said, you know, go find the pinned post on his, uh, on his Twitter account to, uh, to get the kind of the, the deeper dive, the 2000 word dive, into into that because he really does a, a pretty good job of relating it to some real world situations uh like we tried to do in this interview and it's important to get this it's important to get this right it's we don't have very many primary criteria one of them is not particularly useful at the moment and we're at a point here where we we need that information to be as good as it can be because we have to pick the best five remaining teams before it's coming i know but I think we're we're reaching the point where the number of at-large bids is small enough that we're starting to chop out teams that might be able to win. And if we're chopping those teams out because the strength of schedule metric is bad, then this then the system's not working the way that I think it's supposed to. Let me just I just want to point out that both Larry Harmon and Logan Hansen used WEAC. And now I'm I'm questioning everything that I know about that am i on the wrong side of of everything here have i been doing this wrong the entire time well i noticed that you used wiac earlier in the podcast so that's good i feel like i'm i'm mixing it up i'm just going to jumble it all up so that nothing is standard (laughs) i find that in my informal uh observations what i found is that uh the closer you are to oshkosh the more you might hear weak uh and in the rest of the state i fairly often hear wiac instead yeah, I think my my go-to is still Wyack, but man, these uh, these all these alternative options keep popping up. <laughs> and this was Around the Nation podcast number 303, released on April 30th, 2022. Thanks for listening and keep an eye out. There's still continuing coverage throughout the offseason. I mean, as of this recording, there are 1,081 games in the Division Three football schedule. We expect to have about 1,250 uh, in order to have a full season. There's 190 full schedules. If you uh, or your team is one of the 50, I mean, you can just tweet it at us. Uh, I, you know, I'll spend some time over the weekend punching in games. I do that for fun. I like to know when Western Connecticut is playing Fitchburg State. And at the moment, we don't have that game. So the is there a trophy in that game? Well, so West Westcon has a new nickname. What's the new Westcon nickname? The new Westcon nickname is Wolves. Who knew that one slipped through the cracks? <laughs> Doesn't have a trophy. That's a great question, and one that I should have anticipated being asked. Um, anyway, you can support production of this podcast in the D3Sports.com family of websites in general by visiting Patreon.com/D3Sports. And even if you can't afford to support us in a financial way, you can help us out by telling a friend, a classmate. 
uh, fellow alum of your school, tell them about this show. You can rate and review us also in the various places where people rate and review podcasts. And we appreciate all those positive reviews, especially in the Apple podcast multiverse and that sort of thing. You can reach us to talk more about Division 3 football on Twitter using the D3FB hashtag. I'm at D3Football. Greg is at Wally Wabash. Uh, we have a message board devoted to Division 3 sports as well. Did you know? Join the conversation by registering to post with a legitimate email address at d3boards.com. Also, you can follow d3football.com on Facebook. The executive producer of the d3football.com Around the Nation podcast is Pat Coleman. Production assistance provided by Dave McHugh. Our theme music is Power 2 by DJ Mentos. We use more of his tracks as well. You can find them at djmentos.com as well as on Spotify. Thanks to Dave McHugh. Thanks to Larry Harmon. Thanks to Logan Hansen. I thought the thing that Greg was going to say was that they both have the initials LH. Thanks to uh, Sarah Harborth, the Sports Information Director at Mary Hard Baylor, for helping us get set up as well. And uh, thanks to the originator of Around the Nation on D3Football.com, Keith McMillan, and my co-host, Greg Thomas. The Wolves, man. The Wolves. Yeah, you know, the Wolves. I know a lot of Wolves in Western Connecticut. I know when I drove through Danbury... And I drove through Danbury quite a bit in that year that I was working at NBC. I saw lots of wolves right up and down Route 7. That's not true at all. I got nothing. No idea. Thank you. Thank you so much, everybody.